Hello and welcome to The Periphery, a new podcast from the Pulaski Institution. It's going to be focused on politics, economics, and culture in places away from the traditional centers. And I'm Alan Elrod, your host, as well as the president and CEO of the Pulaski Institution. What you're going to hear today is an interview with John Hogan Morris. John is a non-resident fellow at the Pulaski Institution. He's also an assistant professor of economic geography at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, uh, and he's written on a range of topics, including credit and debt relationships, central banking, uh, finance, and the political economy of climate change. And John and I are going to be talking about a few different topics in British politics and economics and focusing a lot on how that plays out in the regions and the parts of Britain uh, away from London in the sort of center of, of British economic and political life. Uh, the two big things we're going to get into in, in this conversation is the leveling up scheme, uh, which the Johnson government has pushed uh, to uh, address inequality in the British regions, and also the truck driving shortage, which is a story that I think is pretty interesting and important and gets at a lot of complicated aspects of supply chains and, and modern economics and, and also just how some of the challenges of Brexit and economic inequality are playing out uh, in the UK. Um, so in a minute, I'll switch over uh, to that conversation, and we will kick off uh, starting a conversation about leveling up, uh, and, and you'll get to hear from John, and hopefully you will be uh, as interested as I was, and, and that you enjoy our first episode. So thanks very much, and without further ado, uh, here's the podcast. Anyone who's joining us who's not a listener from the United Kingdom probably isn't particularly familiar with the leveling up project uh, and what those policies entail. Um, the very basic understanding I think we could say is that uh, it's a, a policy centered around uh, reducing economic inequality rather than between people or social groups uh, between regions. And in the United Kingdom, uh, traditionally the north uh, of the country has been its sort of industrial heartland uh, and the areas where we've seen, similar to what we've seen in, in many other Western democracies, uh, somewhat decline as manufacturing jobs have fled, uh, as we've seen a kind of transition to more tech-based uh, industry, and as we've seen uh, global trade disrupt what were traditional manufacturing centers uh, in uh, some of the older advanced economies. So leveling up is geared at uh, trying to put investment back into the different regions of the United Kingdom, right, and to try to essentially create a little more uh, economic um, equality between these places. But it's also not something that's been, I think, without uh, some controversy and also without some hiccups, particularly uh, as implementation has met some of the roadblocks of both uh, the COVID pandemic and, and Brexit. So do you want to talk a little bit at first here just about leveling up and the leveling up scheme and, and what it is and sort of how it's been received Broadly, yeah. So I think this is, you know, really, really um, important topic because it's certainly been something that since 2019 and you know a resounding election victory for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party that has been a really, really kind of big part of um, government narrative and kind of rhetoric um, on what they're going to be doing um, for the economy. That election was interesting because the Conservatives. Um, had huge gains in 
an area that the British press and, and, and kind of the politicians are talking about as um, the red wall. So a lot of northern seats that had voted for um, Labour uh, politicians for, you know, we're talking, you know, consecutively for 50 to 80 years or even longer. Um, and so these are seen as quite um, stunning gains um, in and, certain and areas. This yeah. red wall is similar, right, to the way we describe, frankly, the blue wall in the United States of sort of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, upper Midwestern sort of industrial states, right, that that are, I think, somewhat related, right? This is a process that we've also seen in the UK, right, of, of sort of post-industrial areas. Uh, yeah, it's post-industrial areas, but places with huge industrial heritage not only economically but also so socially and culturally um, and so it would be unthinkable previously for a lot of people to not vote for the parties that everyone has always voted for um, and as I say this, these, these are quite stunning gain, gains and really uh, you know within that wider context that so you have number one, the idea, well, what is it a kind of a response to? Well, it's a response to that election victory in the short term, but also it's a lot longer term of these very long term um, geographical um, inequalities that are in Britain. And while a lot of people might be tempted to trace these to the 1980s um, and the kind of um, deindustrialization policies of say the Thatcher government and kind of again a lot of the same um, approaches and ideas that you might have had to kind of a Reagan government in the United States but actually for a lot of these areas this goes on a lot further and it actually goes back to say even the 1950s um, of areas that were kind of declassified as places for future growth and perhaps a hope that jobs as jobs moved away from those areas so would people that's not really been the case. People are a lot stickier than perhaps economic theory sometimes suggests. And that means that you have areas that we might call um, left behind. And when we talk about these left behind areas, I know that Alan has already framed this in, or you've already framed this in terms of, um, you know, region. And I think it goes a little bit more kind of specific than that. And kind of as geographer, we might also talk about place in this sense. Um, and so, and so what, what we sort of have here is when we say these kind of left behind places and here we, yes, we're talking about industrial places. We're also talking about kind of what in Britain we would call former seaside towns. These are places that often, you know, were made a lot of kind of creative money and jobs through tourism. So Blackpool might be a famous one. Some of your listeners might have heard of Brighton is one, although not a great example of this phenomenon because it's in the South. Um, and so you always have a flow of people to and from London from it, but certainly um, places in the north. But I'd say maybe Blackpool might be the one that some of your listeners might be more familiar with. But there are plenty of these on kind of the northeast coast around Newcastle, on kind of East Yorkshire coast as well, um, you know, and other parts of the UK as well. But these kind of former seaside towns are kind of another big one and also more peripheral rural areas. And these areas are generally going to be places where we've seen kind of comparatively low economic output and low employment growth, a lack of graduate jobs and white collar jobs, we'd probably say, we'd say probably lower than average pay. Um, and lots of people, you know, particularly young people moving out of those areas as soon as they can move out, because there are not, to be honest, not great economic prospects. And this has again been a longer term thing. And another aspect, I guess, is going to be kind of higher rates of poverty. So we have this idea of saying, well, okay, the government is now going to do something to address that. 
and you know and and so this is kind of the longer term structural problem there and you know and these are very very you know um in some in some areas these are very very ingrained because as i say if the story is in some places that this has been happening since the 1950s then the reality in in in, in some regions and certainly somewhere that i was um in march 2020 um for uh, kind of a teaching field trip and looking at the northeast we were in a in a in, in a town called bishop auckland um and we were kind of visiting and and and, and talking to some uh, charities around there and there has been a lot of philanthropic money go into that area in the last decade um, there is no kind of official figure on this um, I think we're probably looking at anything between 50 million and 100 million from one benefactor but even then that organization thinks that they're not going to see any tangible you know changes um, for 25 years and, and 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 this particular kind of money is connected to some things that are more tourist attractions and often you know the BBC like to focus on it because it's kind of a uh, you know it's a bit of a, a you know a bit, bit of a kind of a you know millionaire wants to save the region and they, they the way the BBC often treat this is you know oh they're just going to open some tourist attractions and tourists will save the day and actually these are much wider kind of issues to do with things like you know, three generations of um, unemployment in terms of families, which is, you know, a big challenge when you come to how can you suddenly just start turning on the jobs tap, right? This is a big challenge. Again, so you know, this questions is, to do... Oh, sorry. No, you're good. This is something I think uh, we should touch on a little because I, I think a question I have is when, with regards to leveling up, um, is there a sense... Um, uh, among you know uh, policymakers and industry experts in in Britain, that I think is been expressed in the United States to some degree with these conversations around, you know, um, obviously from the Trump perspective of say make America great again, but even even the Biden administration's push for making things in the United States of some of these jobs uh, are gone for good is there a sense that um some of the targets are perhaps maybe are, are they are they even possible in terms of restoring particular kinds of economic activity to these to these areas yeah so so this is kind of yeah really building um on on this ground and kind of setting it up is that is that, yeah, you know, you've had kind of this, what we might call structural unemployment. You also have connected to this um, issues to do with, yes, um, poverty connected to income, but also wider kind of um, connections to health inequalities and education inequalities. And these things are all really important when it comes to, first of all, the kind of places and communities that policymakers are reaching out to. And I think kind of the Trump administration on this is extremely interesting in the sense of i think reaching out to particular communities that had built up around particular industries so when he's talking about when he was talking about america first and talking about the steel rust belt areas and talking about kind of um particular um farm areas i find it very hard to get away from this idea that there was certain um 
um, ethnic groups that he was also reaching out to with a very symbolic politics, that a lot of the policies that he pursued, as we know, actually imposed costs on communities such as soya farmers, and that Trump eventually had to end up um, subsidising those industries. So it seemed like a very, for me, to just focus on Trump for a second, because I think there are good parallels there, of a symbolic politics of reaching out to particular communities that that had grown up historically around particular industries. And I, I really, from an outside perspective, this is something that I really saw a lot of kind of Trump on trade and industry really doing in that sense. Now to kind of flip this onto the UK perspective, there is a sense, I think, particularly with kind of, you know, the few academics who are writing on levelling up right now, because it's still a very recent phenomenon, is that um, what, what, um, what, and again, this links to a lot of the, I guess, discussion around uh, American policy post 2016 is that is levelling up a response to, um, say, a shift in the United Kingdom politically and, and kind of culturally to the right, but in terms of economics, perhaps to the left. And what this might allow a party to do is to, um, you know, mobilise policies, but also discussions around economic interventionism and the types of things we often associate with more kind of um, left-wing part political parties. But under, say, Trump and under kind of the, the Johnson administration, you might have these quite powerful redistributive tools, but geared towards, um, you know, particular communities and around particular issues to do with kind of identity and to do with kind of questions about, you know, um, people who aren't metropolitan elites and, and the people who feel left behind and communities that feel neglected. And so I think that, that there are some interesting parallels on that, some interesting parallels on that. Um, but I think that, you know, to link that to those industries, well, these are questions not just, again, of just investing in infrastructure. And there is a debate within levelling up of what do you level up and what do you spend money on? Do you spend it on physical stuff, which gives you a nice symbolic politics? You know, we've built a new hospital. We've built kind of, you know, things that you can see are going to be there for ages. Or are you investing in people and kind of human capital and skills and resources? And, and, and this idea that we might just suddenly reverse, you know, let's say since the 80s, we might reverse, you know, 40 years of, of kind of deindustrialization and a shift towards a service economy and a finance-led growth model, but you might suddenly just have people who can suddenly do jobs. Well, actually, there's a lot of kind of skills training that is required to do these things. There are also kind of health inequalities that need to be reversed. Um, and a lot of questions to do with that, that, that a simple let's pivot back to industrial you know, the industrial, you know, heritage and those kind of jobs is really kind of missing out. And so I think that there is a danger within, um, already within kind of the levelling up drive for it to be more of a symbolic politics rather than much more else. But that remains to be seen, I guess. Does I that think help? that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of things in there that I think we could probably tease out a little more is this, attitude about, um, I think the Biden administration in the United States here has called it human infrastructure, right? And sort of the distinction between putting money into what we obviously see as traditional infrastructure, that's transit routes, um, 
you know, uh, uh, production, various kinds of material aspects of, of the economy, um, things, that, things that move people and goods around. Um, and instead, this kind of shift to individuals themselves, stuff like healthcare, very quality of life type issues that really, uh, you know, were not traditionally part of the conversation around infrastructure. In fact, right in the United States, some of the pushback uh, uh, from Republicans and even some moderate Democrats has been that, well, this stuff actually isn't infrastructure, right? So why are we doing it? Or at least why are we trying to do it under the banner of, of infrastructure reform and, and spending? So I think that would be an interesting thing to, to touch on. And then sort of uh, in a moment, we can get to, I think, probably the, the banner, maybe the banner project that falls under the more traditional umbrella of infrastructure, which is the, the HS2 line that's been an, an ongoing project. But I think first, maybe we could dive a little deeper into this this aspect you're touching on of, of human infrastructure and how um, how leveling up is maybe trying to address uh, uh, people, human capital, as you said. Yeah, so at the moment, I don't think it is addressing that. And I think that is, if you like, that is going, that is the big tension at the moment. To be, to be fair to the government, um, you know, they, they have not had a number of budgets in which to address this. And they have been dealing um, with a global pandemic that has put huge pressure or, yeah, has put huge pressure on public finances. Whether or not you think that is a huge problem um, is an open question. But certainly within that political party, within that chance of the exchequer and within a wider narrative since 2010 in the United Kingdom, which is that lots of public expenditure is definitely a bad thing and is going to lead to the ruin of the country, then having a huge pressure on the public finances caused by a pandemic is going to cause a restraint on any other kind of investment policy that one wants to do. So I think that 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 it's useful to say that it has been quite difficult to announce policy and, and what that might look like. But if we're just talking about investment in people at the moment, the limit has been the furlough scheme, which was about you know effectively subsidising wages um, with companies so that companies could stick people on furlough rather than laying them off during the last year when the government was effectively closing down large parts of the economy um, for public, public health um, and also economic perspective, I guess, in that sense of you cause longer term lasting damage. So I think that the limit at the moment of any kind of that sort of spending has been more to do with the furlough scheme. Um, the, the, the wider question to do with kind of um, training and kind of reskilling and, and those kind of things is not really there. Um, one opportunity to do this would be to have invested more money into schools to help the year groups in schools that have been affected by not having in-person teaching. And, 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 and we're talking schools here um, in the last year and a half um, of, you know, uh, having to effectively learn through online resources and not having that kind of that kind of contact. And ultimately, the government decided not to spend very much per student on that. So I think that at the moment, we've seen very little of that investment in human capital. Um, and the focus has been on that more physical capital and that kind of 
physical infrastructure, so things like railway, the HS2, which was again a longer term project, but that that is kind of indicative of it. Um, um, something that we've seen a lot of is the government talking about the amount of hospitals that they claim to be building, and I can tell a lot about that, but I don't think your listeners will be will perhaps be as interested in as me. But I think that it is indicative of a thing that they're currently, you know, spending on. Um, and when you were talking about what we mean by physical infrastructure, I just keep thinking of the word kit, you know, like like roads and like hospitals and like I just think of that term kit when I think of it. But that really seems to be, um, you know, all there is there. And, and you know, um, so I think that at the moment I'm not seeing a lot on the kind of things that we would say that the Biden administration is talking about, which is about, you know, how are you going to equip people for the jobs of the future? Um, and this is really where his question about human infrastructure, about education, um, about training and, and about other things to do with health, quite frankly, because, you know, as I was kind of touching on that, if we're going to talk about left behind communities, we do need to talk about very, very clear health inequalities and inequalities that are, you know, cannot be isolated from the economic decline of those regions. Because if you have, you know, if you have, a, 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 say, a question of household poverty, then there are a number of questions that one has to face, right? It's not merely a question of, you know, the reason that, say, um, people may have health problems is, is purely to do with decisions that they make around perhaps the food that they consume. And often kind of a, a debate around questions to do with, say, obesity, always focusing on the idea of individual choice. And perhaps they might focus on the idea of, okay, well, one needs to make kind of healthier food cheaper so that people choose that rather than very, very cheap convenience food, the kind of food, you know, if we're going to use an example, McDonald's, but we could use any example of fast food. I'm not just picking on them there. But there's a wider question here. It's not just a case of perhaps, oh, you know, uh, a lack of informed judgment around nutrition and diet. Because if I, again, if I'm in a household that is struggling with household poverty and perhaps other questions to do with credit and debt, which is, again, a big thing on the horizon, a big feature of the last 10 years in the UK is household debt increasing and people using credit and debt to just get by and meet their bills because incomes haven't gone up. Then there are questions to do with, OK, I could buy, say, health, you know, really good, nutritious, healthy groceries, and that could help me if I actually have to make decisions between, um, you know, money that goes towards electricity for cooking and then perhaps other pots of money that go towards like heating. In the winter, then what do you choose? Do you use kind of healthy cooking or do you choose heating your household? And so these are not just a straight question of suddenly, oh, you know, if you suddenly increased income slightly, people's lives would get better. These are much bigger questions to do with actually losing over generation knowledge to do with kind of health outcomes and, and the ability to do that and kind of really ramming home for generations, really, really tough choices. And so I think that ultimately there is no kind of silver bullet to this. Suddenly just building things is not the answer. Um, yes those things are important but building things is, is just not the sole answer to that and to kind of link back to that question that i said around you know even the philanthropic charities that are doing a fantastic job and they are brilliant places we went in we had really good informative conversations around and really got to grips i think from 
from the bottom up in terms of issues that people faces in, in, in kind of post-industrial um, areas was that they were very, very realistic that you're not going to see huge changes. Their initial timeline was 25 years. You know, occasionally the BBC, so the British Broadcasting Company, will have a piece on their website where they talk about this area and this kind of Auckland project because they kind of built a sort of uh, tourist attraction there, a big castle. They spent a lot of money on it. But this kind of idea that just tourists are going to fix things is not the answer. You know, just putting a tourist attraction does not fix a region, you know, a, a place or a region's problem. So speaking of, of actually building things, one of the kind of uh, marquee projects that's been ongoing for some time now uh, has been the HS2. This is a high-speed rail link that's meant to essentially uh, provide greater uh, transport access across particularly the north. Um, obviously, this is a conversation that comes up in the U.S. as well, but it's it's different considering uh, the, the sheer, uh, uh, you know, size of Britain's rail infrastructure, the degree to which Britain still actually uh, heavily relies on rail infrastructure. And so uh, fixing a kind of inequality in rail transport in the United Kingdom between sort of the north and south of the country is a significant step, right? So we've, we've said, you know, it's not enough to just build things, but I think the, the HS2 project it speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, right, you do need uh, at some point, um, that sort of more traditional core set of things that we consider to be infrastructure, right, in order to achieve economic growth, right? All it's not it's not enough. It's sort of a necessary, maybe, but not sufficient uh, equation where it, those things are still fundamental to to being able to build uh, a new economic growth and 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 in enlivening communities. So I think we could talk briefly um and before sort of wrapping this particular sec- section up uh about HS2 in particular and whether it's sort of uh it's its status um which has hit some some challenges in and of itself and, and uh how it is developing along at this point. Yeah. So HS2 has I can't, I can't even remember when they, when, when they announced building it. it, it it's, it's been a very, very ongoing ongoing project. And, and it was always going to be, right? This big, um, you know, building, developing a high-speed railway link between London and certainly Birmingham in the Midlands and then places in the north such as Manchester um, and Leeds. And what, and the kind of current stories that Alan's referring to are a number of, rumours, leaks and speculation that the line will probably not uh, be extended beyond Birmingham now. And so you have a question of, okay, you're connecting a reasonably close part of the UK anyway. I can already get a train into central London from Birmingham, which is where I live, actually. I can already get a train there within an hour. So in that respect, that might speed that up a little bit, but I'm not really convinced yes that will probably mean more people from london can move can move up to birmingham and then commute and they may choose right to do so. yeah for listeners but, uh, i can yeah. say uh i was also uh john and i were briefly at the at the same institution uh where he was lecturing and i was a student at warwick and i was living uh in the midlands as well and you know the links there are already fairly convenient right like i i was living 
um, about maybe 20 miles southeast of, of Birmingham in, in, in Lymington Spa, which is another town in, in the Midlands. And the, the transit links were pretty straightforward that I could also really, frankly, from door to train station, uh, make it to London uh, occasionally in, in under 90 minutes. Uh, so I think that's what you're saying is right now that um, some of this doesn't necessarily actually uh, make transit all that much more convenient for some of the places that are being connected, right, that already had fairly good links. So the question is really, how are these other places where there was a need to create those strong links? Um, how are they actually being integrated into this uh, yeah, and this really, really does speak to the wider question again around levelling up, because ultimately Leamington is Leamington Spa is already a big commuter town to London and Birmingham. I already a lot of people do commute to London from Birmingham already. And so the question there is, are you just almost providing nicer areas for London workers to live where they have a better quality of living, but can get in reasonably around the time, the same time they would if they lived in the more peripheral parts of greater London? And so our question is, as Alan said, what is the overall approach to kind of the geography of um, of of kind of um, left behind places or certainly the geography of leveling up? Right. Because, well, I think, first of all, you know, there's a number of kind of wider, w- wider issues that this really speaks to, which is one is, is leveling up just about kind of improving the economic and productivity gap between regions and let's say London in the southeast, which is kind of the big prominent one. Um, or is this a more fundamental attempt, if you like, um, to address very, um, very generalizable phenomena that we might call agglomeration, the clustering of economic activities that often there's a difference between our core cities in the UK, which some of those are linked, are were supposed to be linked with HS2, like Manchester and like Leeds, for example, which is one of the more prominent UK financial centres which is a place that you would probably want to connect to things. The government has apparently big hopes for Leeds, but if you're not going to connect it by HS2, then what is happening there? So you have a wider question there about actually you're addressing those questions to do with kind of core cities and kind of rural areas and kind of more peripheral areas to start with. And I think, you know, there's also here, um, you know, some questions about, well, do you have an idea or an approach or a theory to, you know, whether and how to connect different urban areas? And, you know, and this is about, you know, is the idea to connect areas that are kind of lagging um, areas with centres of growth? And then what does that look like? Does that just mean that you're connecting those areas so people have a nice place to live where they commute to those core areas and come back out again? Are you perhaps, unfortunately, going to just add to a more um, a phenomena that we've seen in Britain um, for a long time, but I would say that again, since the 80s, this has become more prominent as areas have become left behind, deindustrialized. We've seen a huge um, drain of talented people and, 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 and capital as well from the regions to London. And when often people talk about kind of the global system and economy and say that you have these kind of core areas in the global economy that grow you know, keep on growing and growing and building. And that is almost predicated on draining from more peripheral regions of the global economy. Well, I think that it is fair to say that that process has happened in Britain, certainly since the 1980s. And so there is a wider question here of, of how does one counteract that? And is it a case of, of you know, 
integrating those peripheral regions in a way that does not just exacerbate people and money flowing into particularly London and the Southeast. Um, and I think that is the wider question um, that that question, Alan, really, really, you know, gets to. Um, that question of, you know, what does it mean to link lagging behind places, left behind places with our core cities? Um, and again, I don't think at the moment there is a clear answer coming to that from the government. But if we are going to judge on actions, then what they actually do on HS2 and whether or not this story around them disconnecting leads from it, that's actually going to be quite critical. And I think that will be a good indicator of what is going on with this as a wider phenomena about whether we're actually seeing some kind of joined up thinking on this or not. Right. And, you know, as you say, a, a huge amount of what we are really trying to work on here at the Pulaski Institution is a consequence, right, of this kind of rise of these um, global cities, frankly, kind of understates it, these particularly uh, high-powered centers, right, of activity uh, that just sort of hoover up ever more um, finance and, and, and both, both human and uh, traditional capital right into them. So London and the United Kingdom being a, an excellent example of this and, and in the United States, places like, like New York um, and, and Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, although the geography of the United States makes um, the way those things are sort of arranged a little different and a little more uh, uh, complicated at times because of the size of the country, but still this, this challenge, right, of, of how much uh, London kind of absorbs um, both in terms of talent and in terms of economic investment and, and activity. So um, I'm going to leave it. Why don't we take a quick break uh, to, um, to uh, leave a note here for, for our listeners and, and discuss the activities. Uh, hello. Uh, you might notice this isn't actually really an ad break uh, at the moment. Uh, this podcast is brand new. We're not ad supported. Uh, but I do want to take a moment just to encourage you to go and check out our website, PulaskiInstitution.org, as well as to find us on uh, social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, at PulaskiInst, I-N-S-T. And uh, you know, we just think that it'll be a good opportunity for you to engage with the institution, get to know our team, the people who are already on board, learn a little bit about what we plan to do, um, and keep up to date uh, as we get off the ground and as we look to start uh, fundraising to support uh, the various projects we hope to undertake. Uh, with, the, uh, with that said, uh, I'll toss it back to uh, my interview with John. All right, welcome back um, to The Periphery. Uh, I'm your host, Alan Elrod, here talking with John Hogan Morris, non-resident fellow at the Pulaski Institution and a assistant professor of economic geography at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom. John, we were talking about uh, leveling up in these uh, attempts in the United Kingdom to try to address uh, particularly economic inequality between the various regions and localities within the United Kingdom. I think one thing that is particularly interesting to drill down on in this is the UK has made quite a few headlines by being the first major economy to announce uh, a net zero goal, right, for its economy. And so I'm interested in, in discussing a little bit about how the net zero agenda 
for the UK economy relates to this attempt to uh, uh, address uh, inequality between uh, the regions? Yeah, so this is again, I think is a really, really uh, kind of important question. And I, I think that something that uh, something that we've seen recently is a number, I think it's 100 um, regional leaders have written at least once, if not twice, to the government saying that actually going to need a lot more um, investment um, in areas to mitigate against perhaps some of the costs of transitioning away from um, high carbon emission um, economic activities and more generally ways of living. Um, so ways that will not only kind of smooth the impact of transition of having to do certain things, getting, I don't know, certain types of boiler fitted and whatever, um, but also questions to do with job losses and job creation and the way that this has been framed. And I think this is something that the UK has been framing uh, green transitions and climate transitions more generally as is an opportunity to reset the economy um, in ways that will create jobs in green sectors, um, in ways of green technology and innovation, and also perhaps, you know, reinventing London as a green financial centre. Um, and this is all very, very admirable kind of ambition. Uh, but as these regional leaders are talking about, and um, they have been quite sceptical about a disconnect between, um, you know, language around this and also action, and I think that we do see certain, areas, certain concerns about that in a number of different areas. But I think that, you know, the main question here that these regional leaders are asking for is money to invest in human capital, particularly in terms of retraining and reskilling and what one could then do um, in terms of jobs. So what this does, I think, in two ways is it's a microcosm and a really great example of these wider questions. First of all, about this question of is levelling up about consolidating um, or re repositioning the British Conservative Party um, in terms of you know, using perhaps more interventionist policies to help particular communities. And particularly right at the beginning, we talked a bit about this kind of red wall and these new areas that traditionally don't vote for the Conservative Party that have done. And I think there is a concern within the party about what happens then if you're suddenly spending colossal amounts of money and it would be at least billions, if not higher, um, on the kind of things that do need to be done to take a transition to low carbon economy seriously, that number one, are voters in those areas going to be happy with a huge amount of expenditure on that? But number two, if there are things that also uh, do increase household costs and kind of put strain on household budgets, is that again going to be something that voters turn away from the Conservative Party on. And so I think there's that, that first question. And then kind of the second question there again is, are you spending the money on physical stuff, on kit infrastructure, or, you know, road infrastructure, as Alan said, or are we spending stuff on kind of human infrastructure, skills, training, um, so that people can transition to do those kind of jobs. So I think it's a really, really great example of these, of these wider questions. Um. Sort of to transition away from the, the question of uh, the Conservative Party and the Tories in the United Kingdom, I think um, you know this is this has come up really recently now with the sort of controversy of the Campbell oil field in Scotland uh, for the Scottish National Party, which uh, you know I think part of what we're getting at 
in in British politics more generally is the way that the Conservative Party has sort of retooled its own image and even maybe policy priorities, as you've discussed with this kind of somewhat mixture of social conservatism, right, especially particularly on maybe issues of immigration, um, but then also, you know, a, a much more maybe aggressive spending agenda than, than previous conservative uh, party governments might have embraced. The Scottish National Party, on the other hand, I think is faced with a somewhat a different kind of dilemma in that it is a party that has always sort of built itself as as center left and uh, progressive, uh, and therefore um, progressive on issues regarding climate. Uh, but the challenge I think there is is it's also a party that's rooted in the desire for Scottish independence, uh, and certainly Scotland's um, uh, energy reserves and in its uh, economic reliance on its oil reserves is is integral to the SNP's longer-term agenda for Scottish independence. So I'm interested there with the prospects of the Campbell oil field, which we now know um, drilling has been postponed, and the relationship there, I suppose, between the broader leveling up agenda, but also the particulars of Scottish politics uh, and the SNP's uh, own uh, agenda for for the Scottish economy and obviously for uh, a potential uh, second independence referendum. Yeah, this is this is a really fascinating issue for a number of reasons, and and kind of a, the first one here I would say is that the wider context is, as Alan just said about the SNP, is that last week the SNP and the Green Party in Scotland um, agreed it's not a formal coalition, but it's some kind of partnership arrangement um, where the Green Party, who has a significant number of seats, it's not the second largest party or the third largest, I think it's probably four, but it's 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 around there. But certainly, um, in order to consolidate the SNP against perhaps losing one or two seats, is that they now have um, a, a kind of a loose arrangement with the Green Party, or more than that, I guess, in which two members of the Green Party are going to be involved in the governance of Scotland um, with the SNP, and this has been instantly framed by. The leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, as um, a favourite phrase that they have rehashed from um, from from uh, 2015 about kind of coalitions of chaos, um, but also about the prospect of having Green Party in government would impact, you know, jobs and uh, you know the economy. And I think that what's first of all interesting about that is that it, it speaks to kind of a number of a number of I guess issues about the co coherency of what this repositioning of the Conservative Party in Britain is about to start with when when Alan has mentioned that you know they they want they have talking about positioning Britain as kind of a, a leader on climate change they also talking about this kind of you know spending a lot more than previous Conservative governments but I think it's important I just want to kind of push back on that slightly in the sense that a large part of leveling up, requires one to have a collective amnesia about the amount of um, public sector spending that they cut aggressively since 2010. And so I think that that, that is kind of an important dynamic there is that, is that while often we can look at kind of questions to do with globalization that are important, um, there has been a, you know, a big contraction in public sector um, spending in a number of areas um, since 2010. And so this question about coherence of this vision is really important and you have although some members of the government talking about net zero and 
talking about it in ways that might seem quite compelling. You also have other members who are, you know, concerned about the impacts on particular house on household incomes and also the impacts on on jobs. And I think that what this might for some people look like is a mobilization of some of the more general tropes and narratives that previously were used by people who just denied the impact of climate change is something that 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 economic activities human economic activities contributed to and now perhaps slowing down the transition so very much two classic ones here would be you know a sudden concern for questions of social justice and inequality that might not have been there in the last 10 years but the second one might be also um you know a prioritization of non-transformative economic changes that might sort of sound all right, but might not effectively get where we need to get to, which is significantly cutting emissions. And always a good indication is, is a policy being announced actually going to cut emissions? And is it is it going to do that, but also is it not going to lead to an increase of emissions elsewhere? And if it's not doing those things, then we probably want to pick up on it a little bit more. So I think that that's what this kind of wider issue does. And within Scotland, they do have a bit of a dilemma there, as Alan said, because yes, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, has said that they would like the ability to review the kind of economic impact and, and environmental impact of developments like on and kind of drilling for oil and, and harnessing its resources on a case-by-case -case basis but for a lot of members of the green movement that is not enough that they're saying you should not be going anywhere near this type of stuff now and um, but this is a huge this is a tension because these industries are intimately connected with scottish culture with the scottish economy and at the moment yes with jobs but there is kind of a lot of discussion on this around well can you just maintain national oil production which i think some of your kind of listeners will be interested in are you then you know preventing oil extraction from other parts of the world but might be more damaging and while that's something that people do talk about we do see very little evidence of that argument so again i think it's something that we really really do want to keep an eye on is is this just a question of kind of posturing on this stuff or are we seeing um policy changes to do with say the oil sector that are one going to cut um production and emissions and two are not going to move production around to the rest of the world right and i think just as a kind of parting point there it's obviously complicated a little bit by the fact that um for people who are unfamiliar the, the scottish greens are really the other pro-independence party within scottish politics it's part of why they've been able to partner with the snp but they're really um sort of the other critical party of support uh for independence in scotland yeah, so it's an independence movement that I think with more green impetus could be a very interesting force for that. And also just to kind of add to our wider questions to do with inequality and drivers of inequality, some of the more interesting things that they are also talking about is pushing for things like um, controls on rent and those kind of things. So I think in that sense, um, it could be seen as, as, as kind of a, a positive force um, pushing the SNP, of course, there is a question of, as a as a as a pro independence party, how many Scots are going to vote for that? Probably more than when the last time we had a referendum. But a wider question there is: Will the UK government actually grant the referendum, given that the outcome is a lot less certain than it was when there was the last referendum? Okay, uh, we'll take one more little short break, 
here for some announcements, and then we will come back to talk about the uh, truck driver shortage, the long haul truck driver shortage uh, in the United Kingdom and the impact of that on uh, British retail and, and supply chains. Hey everyone, Alan again. Um, just want to take this chance to encourage you, uh, if you're interested, to navigate to our website, PulaskiInstitution.org, where you can find information about us, about what we plan to get to work on as we get off the ground, and you'll also find a, a donate page. In addition, I'd like to draw your attention to something we put forward uh, every day, Monday through Friday, and that's a roundup of news headlines from Heartland areas, both in the U.S. and abroad, trying to draw your attention to news that's happening in places like the American Midwest and the north of England and rural Australia, anywhere where we think that there are interesting stories happening that touch on the political and economic and cultural realities of uh, 21st century life, and that we think our readers and the people who are interested in the work we're doing would benefit from. So you can check that out on the website as well as through our social media platforms. Uh, and now back to my interview with John. Okay, we're back. Uh, this is The Periphery from the Pulaski Institution. I'm Alan Elrod, your host, as well as president and CEO of the Pulaski Institution. And today we're talking with John Hogan Morris, assistant professor of economic geography at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, and also a non-resident fellow here at the Pulaski Institution. Uh, and we've been talking about various aspects of economic investment and inequality in the United Kingdom, uh, some with the leveling up project as well as the, the net zero goals. But now I want to turn to a story that's really, I think, probably just now maybe catching the eye of some American uh, readers, uh, but has been ongoing for a little while uh, in the United Kingdom. And that's the, the shortage of long haul truck drivers in the United Kingdom. I mean, to, we've seen now this week uh, headlines that probably are breaking through here in the US a little bit for some uh, with regards to McDonald's being unable to serve shakes at a number of locations, uh, uh, stores having to shut down uh, primarily retail, particularly food service, having essentially to uh, close their doors uh, because of the uh, problems in uh, the supply chain that have been caused uh, by this trucking shortage. And I think that it's, it's a really fascinating um, problem. It's a really interesting, uh, I think, way to capture some of the very unique specifics of our modern economy, how much we rely, actually. And one of the key things is on this uh, you know, last minute uh, nature of our economy, the idea of just on time uh, in terms of the 24-7, the, the 365 economy, um, when an economy depends so heavily on um, you know, long haul transport and also just on time deliveries, I think it really reveals a lot of the, the vulnerabilities that are there, probably all the time. But I think this story has a lot. Uh, there's a lot to learn maybe about the British context in particular, but I think maybe a lot to learn about uh, our modern economies in general from this crisis. Yeah, I think it's really, really great that Alan was very, very keen to discuss this. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased because, you know, because at the moment there is, you know, this wider ongoing, um, I guess, I guess, doom loop within British political discourse, which is when there is a problem in the economy, you have two sides screaming at each other about whether or not this was caused by Brexit. And I think that this is one of the reasons that it's been instantly picked up on 
um, certainly in the UK, because it, it again falls into this ongoing um, this ongoing argument. Uh, but I think that the way that we should probably see this, as Alan said, is a longer term phenomena that this current kind of outbreak of this kind of mini crisis at the moment, um, Brexit will have contributed to what's happening right now acutely, but only because um, a lot of the longer term problems were addressed with a very, very loose band-aid by the ability to, um, to you know, to, to, to welcome um, EU workers uh, to fill up some of the shortages um, in the British labour market. So, so kind of, uh, I, I guess, any kind of specific questions on the, on the issue, Alan? You know, I think one of the things that's been particularly interesting about this is the way that we've seen, like you've said, a kind of persistent vulnerability in the British economy. We've seen really about a decades-long problem of, of, of uh, driver shortage. But the way that Brexit and the departure of EU drivers has kind of I think accelerated the challenge. Uh, and I think what's interesting, we can talk about this is, you know, you mentioned earlier this, this tension in sort of maybe a one foot to the right on culture, one foot to the left on the economy for the conservative party is uh, the Johnson government seems to be pretty firm that they're not going to uh, respond to the challenge by uh, uh, turning around and welcoming back a bunch of, of EU uh, drivers. Yeah. So as Alan said, you know, this is, you know, while the use of, um, you know, uh, my immigration to fill uh, shortages in the labour market. As we say, it's been highlighted um, by Brexit because that lever um, has been less available and it's not something it looks like the government is willing to dial back on. But this is, as I say, a problem that really has been 10 years in the making. And it would be interesting to know if this is a wider trend that is also seen in the United States where kind of long haulage driving is really, really important as part of your supply chains as well, perhaps even more significant than in Britain. But certainly this is a, a, a labour market that, say, has had 10 years of, of, of problems building up. First of all, you know, it is actually um, a skilled job that one needs a qualification for this. Um, I haven't looked at kind of Forex today, but I think we think that it's around uh, $2,000 to get the kind of qualification one would need. And, you know, 10 years ago, one could expect a pretty hefty um, remuneration compared to perhaps uh, other jobs that people might go for, um, for a job that is, you know, is long hours, isn't particularly nice to do, um, and does get, used to get quite a lot of compensation. So in 2010, um, the medium kind of long haulage truck driver would earn around 50% more per hour um, than say the medium, um, you know, supermarket cashier. Um, certainly, by ten years later, to twenty twenty, that kind of premium has nearly halved. It's only about twenty seven percent now. Um, and certainly, in the last five years, even when in a lot of other areas, um, we've seen kind of uh, you know wages, um, you know, uh, we've seen kind of uh, hourly pay uh, rise across a number of areas. It's certainly risen with truck drivers significantly less than with other UK employees. So I think for other UK employees, it's been about 16%. For these truck drivers, it's been about 10%. So effectively, you have, you know, jobs that have a lot of responsibility, long, unpredictable hours, um, and the kind of 
the you know the reward for that is lessening against jobs where one can you know uh, uh, do other jobs that uh, certainly uh, impact your life a lot less. And so it's a wider question, and it's a, and it's a question that certainly you know in recent years um, had been you know had been something that we were able to address um, with questions to do with the supply of EU drivers who could fill vac vacancies. Also, more recently. These truck drivers were also able to set up as individual limited companies, which allowed them to um, cut their tax and take home more pay. But that loophole has been closed as well, um, presumably in an attempt to uh, raise more tax revenue in response to the pandemic. Um, so we've got issues there. And also more generally, it's been harder to train as a driver and get the test because of national lockdowns due to the pandemic. So this is a bit of a perfect storm right now is what we're seeing. But generally, I think when we look at kind of economic problems, these like perfect storms that we see, you know, say a financial crisis or a recession or high levels of inflation or whatever that might look like, sovereign debt crisis, for example, often these are, you know, local manifestations or, or kind of trigger points to much wider structural issues. And I think that's what we're seeing in the labor market. And, you know, as I say, it would be interesting to open that dialogue onto um, that particular industry in the United States. I, I think as well that the same kind of journalists who have been looking at this particular issue in Britain have also been drawing attention to things like meat processing and those kind of things as well, which again, I think it would be very interesting to have a United States perspective on that and maybe something we could do in the future um, um, on this blog or podcast. Right, and I think what you're, you're speaking to, I think maybe as a sort of final question or, or note on this is this, this combination of uh, an industry where there's really a pretty high barrier of entry, you've mentioned cost and, and training. And then also um, one of the things that, that's also think perhaps been an un unexpected consequence is as in the United Kingdom, things like retail wages and other things have gone up as other hourly wages have been uh, improved. And this is a thing that we generally want, right? Like the retail sector is a huge important part of the modern economy in, in, in developed economies. And so we want retail workers to make more. But as that's happened, what we've seen is, is essentially uh, a lot of uh, incentives that push people away from things like the, the trucking industry, right? Well, you've already got this high barrier of entry, cost and training, and you've got essentially a, a job that uh, requires long hours, is quite taxing, uh, is quite difficult. Uh, in some ways, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't appreciate perhaps the quite grueling physical nature of being a long haul truck driver. Uh, and, and what that's doing is just sort of pushing people into other jobs when you when when, when you make um, jobs that are more comfortable or perhaps more convenient, uh, more attractive, that one of the consequences, right, is that uh, these other jobs uh, uh, have to also be made more attractive in order to keep uh, their workforce. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, the much wider point here that, that you're seeing in even perhaps news outlets in the UK that you wouldn't expect to is that in order to keep people in areas like this, we are probably going to have to see some level of, you know, wages increase and, and, and presumably inflation. And as we're seeing at the moment in the United States, this is a huge um, pressure point within kind of economics more generally, but also a wider population because, 
because you know yes to have more people in employment and to have people with a better standard of living one will probably have to tolerate some kind of moderate increase in inflation and this speaks to much wider questions certainly in the uk and also in the united states around the politics of inflation that have really been a huge part of the political narrative since the 1970s um, and this is um, and certainly the, you know, the stagflation that was kind of starting in the in, in the US under Nixon and really um, in many ways is a, is a big reason um, for the demise of Jimmy Carter and the rise of Ronald Reagan. Um, but we have a similar story in the United States, uh, United Kingdom around that. And these are really questions around around class questions, really about questions about um, wages um, in jobs that we might think about in terms of manufacturing, in terms of supply chains, in terms of retail, and a question about actually, um, can we afford to pay people better? Or are we worried about inflation that primarily the biggest impact on of inflation in a grander scheme is going to be things like, um, you know, people who hold things like financial assets and assets like housing are the people who really see the relative losses of those. So I think that again, as Alan has really perceptively kind of picked up on, you know, with, you know, a line of questioning that kind of leads us uh, just to thinking about what is going on here. And it returns to our big themes um, around, um, you know, around globalization, around, around wages um, and around questions to do with class. And so I think it's a really great question um, to end on in that sense and a really great topic to end on in that sense that, yes, okay, it's a nice news story about kind of um, something that affects us all, but it again speaks to a wider question of, um, you know, why do some people get more than others and why shouldn't we pay some people, um, compensate people for jobs that are really integral, but not a lot of us actually want to do. Okay, John, uh, before you go, I'm going to try, this is our first episode, but I think, you know, we're a, we're a, a think tank uh, dedicated to places away from sort of traditional centers and and uh and as such even this podcast does in those things so i thought a parting question that might be fun um even in an age where travel is restricted would be to ask you uh one place uh in the united kingdom you think is sort of criminally underrated that if people get the chance they should they should come and see this is this is a this is a fantastic question and 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 um and the answer i'm going to give here is given that i've a lot of a kind of early stuff I was talking about was um, certainly in the northeast of England, um, then I would suggest uh, Whitby uh, in the northeast of England. Now, this is, a, this is a fantastic coastal town. You have very, very nice beaches and seafronts there. Um, you have a, a fantastic local geography as it is in terms of, in terms of, um, in terms of beaches and, 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 and kind of cliff faces, but also a fantastic link to um, the heritage of Britain in terms of this was a really integral part in the Industrial Revolution. You can see how the landscape has been shaped by that. And moreover than that, that when I, you know, if we're going to ask anyone, what is the quintessential English food? What are you going to tell me, Alan? I would say fish and chips. You're going to say fish and chips. And I will say this now that the fish and chips at Whitby is probably the best in the UK. Um, I'm probably going to get a lot of comments on social media about this from other parts of the UK now, but I, I, I would be very surprised um, if there is um, a better one. It is an absolutely must. Anytime we do any kind of field trip with students, any kind of research there, that is the big reward for the day is fish and chips on the beach. Absolutely fantastic. Whitby, 
northeast of UK to do it. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. And um, uh, for those of you who tuned in, thank you for joining us on our very first episode of The Periphery. We will be back uh, with more, uh, and we hope that you will join us then as well. The Periphery is a production of the Pulaski Institution. I've been your host, Alan Elrod. Our music was written, recorded, and produced by Brandon Ragsdale and Cody Smith. Thank you for coming, and please join us next time.